0: We're up to mitzvah number 37. It's the second to last mitzvah in the Ten Commandments, and that is to not testify falsely. Now, with respect to testifying, testimony, being a witness, we find that there's not only one mitzvah, not to testify falsely, mitzvah number 37, there's actually eight different mitzvahs related to testifying. So we have 37, which is not to testify falsely. 75 and 589, and again, we're listing them in the number in the order in which they appear in the Torah, are various people that are disqualified from being witnesses, namely, if someone is a sinner, if someone is a fraud, we know they're a fraud, we know they're not legitimate, they cannot be a valid witness, or if someone is a relative of the litigant's so if there's two people having a uh, an argument, litigation in court, one of them can call to the witness stand their brother or their uncle because we suspect there may be bias. And in fact, even if Moses is on the stand to testify for Aaron, and Moses would say he's above suspicion, still it's a law in the Torah, it's a myth in the Torah that a relative is ineligible to provide testimony for their relative. So those are those are three mitzvahs. But in addition, there's mitzvah number 122, which is to testify, meaning that if you have testimony that you know, you cannot harbor it within you. You have to reveal it in the event that there is a court case related to that. And depending, we'll see more about that in a little bit. So there's a mitzvah to testify. There's also another mitzvah related to testimony, and that is if someone is a witness, you cannot be both a witness and a judge. So suppose you have someone who is a judge and they're the expert judge and they're part of the court. They have to recuse themselves from overseeing and judging this case because they are a witness in the state. You can't play both roles. It can't be both sides of the court procedures. In addition, there's another mitzvah, mitzvah number 4. 63 to cross-examine a witness. This is a myth so that it more relates to the judges themselves. When witnesses provide testimony, the judges are tasked with the responsibility to determine whether these people are maybe lying, maybe they missaw, maybe they misremembered, maybe it wasn't exactly kosher. So there's all kinds of laws related to that. How to cross-examine the witnesses. And there's various different levels of cross-examination depends on the severity of the case. You know, if it's a capital crime case, obviously, The cross-examinations would be more rigorous, more draconian, and two more mitzvos, and they are to not accept the testimony of one witness, meaning that the minimum requirement of most cases, when a case is is presented to a court, is two witnesses. And once you have two witnesses, the preponderance of witnesses doesn't matter. So there's a law. there's There's a line in the Talmud that the law of two witnesses is equal to the law of a hundred witnesses. You cannot add power to a group of of witnesses once you reach two witnesses. Two witnesses say something that's equivalent to a thousand. It doesn't matter. It's it's a unit of testimony. But if there's only one witness, barring very unusual cases, we don't accept the testimony of one witness. Those unusual cases, for example – are what's called edut isha or edus isha, which is a testimony of a woman, which relates specifically to someone who dies and is not around to show, let's say, his wife that she is free to marry. So one of the problems that we face is that if a man dies, let's say, in warfare, this is a more this is a common and a tragic situation where a man dies in warfare and we, he's missing in action which we know, we basically know, we assume he's dead, but we don't have any hard evidence. We don't have a body. So what then? Can his wife remarry? So that's one of the most lenient cases where even if someone is not necessarily a valid witness under ordinary circumstances because this is an extraordinary case that we want to find whatever grounds that we can find to not allow the woman to be shackled her whole life, to allow her to remarry – They'll relax the laws. One person won't be allowed. Even if you if you hear from a non-Jew who generally is not accepted uh, in Jewish court of law, even if you hear it in an indirect manner, there's all these allowances for the court to relax its standard and accept the testimony of one person in, in certain cases. So that would be uh, an example. And finally, the eighth mitzvah related to testimony is to punish those who testify falsely. So if... I conspire, I collude with another witness to, let's say, provide testimony that's total hoax, total fabrication against someone, and we want to get them punished. Let's say we say he committed a murder, God forbid, or whatever. He did something very severe, and the punishment for that, let's say, is it's a capital crime case. The punishment for that is execution. It turns out that we're liars, and our claims are, are total hoaxes, we get punished tit-for-tat. We tried to get someone executed, therefore we ourselves would get executed in the event that we're found to be false witnesses. Similarly, if it's a case of monetary penalties, we say the guy owes the guy, the, you know, uh, Reuven owns, owes Shimon $1,000, and I collude with another witness to make up this total fabrication. In the event that we're proven to be false witnesses, we have to pay that $1,000 that we try to incur. So in the event that we are found to be false, we have to pay tit for tat, that we have to be punished tit for tat. So that's the laws, what's called anem Zomim, false witnesses. What I want to cover today is mitzvah number 122, which is the idea of testifying in general, the idea that we have to testify in the event that we know of information. Uh, number 37, which is the mitzvah that we're up to, which is not to testify falsely. And in the event that someone does testify falsely, they get punished tit for tat, the law of punishing someone, punishing a a unit of of testimony with the exact punishment that they wanted to occur on the victim. So mitzvah number 122 is a mitzvah that we see in the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus chapter 5 verse 1, it tells us that someone who sees or witnesses or knows of information and he does not convey it to the court then the, he shall bear his his iniquity; he shall be guilty. Which tells us that this is an obligation for us in the event that we know information that the court is is either dealing with or that we, under certain circumstances, have to go initiate a court case on this. We cannot withhold our testimony. Now there is a difference between monetary and criminal or capital cases. With respect to monetary cases, monetary cases are arguments between two litigants. One person claims the other person caused them damage or financial harm. One person claims the other person borrowed money, didn't pay back. Things like that, those really are between the two litigants themselves. In that event, like we have today, the two sides would call witnesses to testify. So let's say, suppose I No, of a loan. I was there, me and another witness. We were there. We were privy. Ruvain loaned a hundred thousand dollars, whatever, to, to Shimon. We're his witnesses and he hasn't paid back. In that event, this is a gripe between the two litigants. If Ruvain chooses to initiate a court case, it's his prerogative. It's the onus is on him to say, Oh, Yakovolbe is my Witness, I don't need to go initiate that. I have to be called to testimony. Whereas in the event of me witnessing a crime, me witnessing a capital crime, God forbid, something severe like that, it's not a monetary dispute between two litigants. It's a crime that the individual committed. Then I have to initiate the court case myself. I cannot say, oh, I don't see, I'm not looking, I'm not, you know, uh, whatever, I'm not, I'm not looking, I'm not, I'm not saying, I don't want to get involved, these, this people, are, this, this, I'm scared of the, uh, accused, they may come after me, part of the mafia, I don't want to deal with it, you know, I have a family, you can't do that. It's, mitzvah. So for you, in the event that you see it, you have to do your duty to testify. Now, there are some interesting laws, and of course we can't cover it all, because if we did, it would be for, for a long time, but there are some laws Governing who does not need to testify. So, for example, the Talmud tells us: in the event you have a great sage, and it's beneath his dignity to testify in a petty matter, then he would not be required to do that. Alternatively, if you have the high priest, does the high priest? It was like kind of the the president. Would you call the president, you know, to the small claims court to talk about a dispute over fifty dollars? You wouldn't do that. It's not, it's not befitting someone, someone of that, of that stature. The mitzvah of the individual to testify is provided that it's not beneath their dignity in a flagrant way. So, for example, the law states that a king does not need to testify at all. Can't be, can't be summoned to the court. Can't be subpoenaed to the court. I think it's similar laws we have in America and in our legal system. Similarly, uh, a high priest, unless the accused or the defendant is the king himself, meaning someone of higher stature, the high priest does not need to be brought to the court. Now, there's an interesting question. What if we talked about relatives? We talked about um, people who are disqualified from providing testimony. What if you have someone who is BFFs, best friends? Best friends or conversely enemies? are those people allowed to to testify. It's an interesting question. On one hand, we'd say well, you know, if they're friends, there's the suspicion, maybe there's some sort of chicanery going on over here. That's what you would suspect. Conversely, if they're enemies, you would say maybe the person has a bone to pick and therefore that's going to color their testimony. So it's interesting the law states that there's a difference between being a judge And being a witness in a case of friends and enemies. With respect to testimony, the friend and the enemy is qualified to provide testimony. And the idea is is that the Jewish people, we're kind of above suspicion. We're not going to, because of our own personal gripes that we may have with someone, we're not going to provide false testimony. False testimony is one of the Ten Commandments, something we won't do. Plus, you you always have to have a collaborator So I always have to have someone with you. We're not suspecting that someone, you know, their best friends or, or, you know, their enemies, that they're not, that, that's not going to affect their, their ability to testify with, with integrity. Whereas with respect to judges, uh, the law states that if someone is a judge, they cannot provide the sufficient balance. Again, because the judge has to be impartial. They have to evaluate the evidence. And it's going to be very difficult for them to train their mind to see guilt in their friend or to see innocence and vindication and acquittal in their enemy. And therefore, they should recuse themselves from that case. They shouldn't be a judge for someone that they have a a partiality either way. There's another interesting question with respect to contracts. If someone provides a contract and some signs as a witness in the contract, there's a huge discussion in the Talmud. Is that a replacement for testimony? Is testimony only when someone orally, verbally comes to the court and says, ISO X, Y, or Z? Or is there signature in a document, is that something that can be presented as evidence to the court of their testimony? The reason why this is important, because if I lend someone money, how do I know, like, what's the evidence that they owe me the money? Well, we sign a document. We sign a contract. And the contract is going to be signed by the witnesses. But if I have to find the witnesses and hunt them down and bring them to court to prove the legitimacy of my claim, I'm going to say, you know what? That's too much of a hassle. That's too much of a hassle. Why do, what do I gain? I'm lending, of course, without interest. I gain nothing out of it. And if it's going to be a tremendous hassle for me to hunt these people down, bring them to court, force them to kind of spend a day in court to get my money back, I'm just not going to lend. Simple. And therefore, because of the risk of people withholding from loaning money, our just told us that even though it's kind of an iffy, it's, it's an iffy intermediate stage is – contract to someone's signature contract is that admissible to a court or you really have to be there it's a huge discussion but ultimately the law is that if i provide a document that is signed by two witnesses it's the equivalent of them being present and that can be sufficient for me to demand repayment of my loan. And that's a way to make sure that people will be eager to lend and the, the free flow of money, so to speak, won't be constricted because of the barriers of, of, of testimony to retrieve that money. Another interesting law that we see is that when someone provides testimony, they cannot, in that same case, undo it or reverse it. You would think perhaps that someone who provides testimony and then says, well, I was joking. Yeah, well, I was lying. Well, I made a mistake. Something like that. You would listen to someone in their second statement. That's what you would imagine. But you can't. It's a law in, in, in testimony that once you provide testimony, that's your position and you cannot undo that. So you have to be very careful when you provide the initial testimony that you provide it accurately. Because once you do that, that's fixed. Yes, it can be undone, like if other witnesses come, potentially. There are grounds for it to be undone. But you yourself, your testimony is fixed, and you cannot alter it. You cannot undo it. So those are some of the parameters of testimony. Of course, there's an entire section of Talmud. There's an entire section of the Rambam. There's many, many details. That's the basic idea. It's a mitzvah for us to provide testimony. And in Mitzvah 37, in the Ten Commandments, we say, well, a witness, one of the most important laws, of course, it's it's part of the, part of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it's called. Ten Commandments, this is what the Almighty told us at Sinai, is not to testify falsely. And of course, we know the reason for this. We don't need to be Told that you know the rationale for that, but the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos, he lists some mitzvos. Anyhow, of course, lying, falsehood is a terrible thing in general, and specifically here, the witnesses—they're the the bedrock of the judicial system. The only way we can have a functioning judicial system of people when they come to court and when they take the oath, when they pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth that they're actually upholding their word. And even today, like per- perjury, uh, people lying to the court under oath is a very severe crime because that undermines the integrity of the whole system. And he explains, he says, like a functioning society really can only exist if there's a functioning judiciary. And a functioning judiciary can only exist if people are honest in their testimony. Ergo, honesty and testimony is the only way to have a functioning society. Therefore, it's so important, and it makes a lot of sense to us why this would end up in the Ten Commandments, why it's one of these bedrock foundations of Judaism, but really, more broadly, of of any functioning society. And it seems to imply, as well, that really, everything that we know about everything comes from testimony, in effect. you know The amount that you yourself discover in a lifetime is... Compared to what you know in general, it's very slender. It's very, it's very slim. It's very little. It's very minimal. What you know is from your parents, from your teachers, from what you read. Most of it you can't really verify yourself. So in effect, everything that we know, everything our worldview was shaped by the testimony of others, and therefore, not just kind of a society today cannot exist without honest testimony, but more broadly, our culture, our people, the life that we live is really guided by the instruction we get from other people, which which too has within it the status of, of testimony. Now, like we said, there are ways to try to verify that. This is its own mitzvah. We'll talk about it sometime in the future, please God. But the court has to verify the legitimacy of Of the testimony what they do is they separate the two witnesses and they ask him specific questions and then they go off script and ask him non-specific questions and the talmud delineates there's seven specific questions they have to ask him and then there's other questions that they they asked him that they asked the two witnesses again when they're separated they ask them independently and then they compare notes did the two contradict each other did they say that they don't know and it depends, you know, if the, during these seven questions, these are the basis of their testimony. And therefore, if one of them says, I don't know, then they're disqualified. And therefore, the testimony is annulled. Whereas in those – all those other questions that we asked, we go off script, so to speak. Then only if they contradict each other, only then is their testimony invalidated. But otherwise, if someone says, I don't know, like the Talmud says, you know, there was a murder that happened. Well, where did it happen? Next to a tree. Okay, what kind of tree was it? Were the branches thick branches or were they thin branches? Some examples the Talmud gives. Questions that don't relate to the actual crime itself, but to the arena of the crime, the surroundings of the crime, and we're trying to find holes in the argument if one says, well, this was a big oak tree, and one says, no, it's the kind of the small little bush, then we have enough grounds to invalidate the testimony because they contradicted each other. If one says, well, it was a big oak tree, and the one says, I don't really remember what kind of tree it was, then that would still be admissible because they're not contradicting each other. Whereas if someone one guy says it was on Sunday, one guy says it was on Tuesday, they don't even agree when the crime happened that testimony is invalidated. Now, what's interesting is that for them to be proven to be false witnesses – that's different than from then to, from, from the two witnesses to be disqualified. So if the two witnesses disagree with each other, one says it was on Sunday, one says it was on Tuesday, the court says these people are not admissible, the case is dismissed. However, in that event, where the two people don't agree on the basic facts, or one of them says they don't know the basic facts, or they contradict each other on all those other questions, That case is dismissed entirely. Those people are not considered false witnesses. Maybe they made a mistake, but they're not false witnesses. For someone to be judged as false witnesses, meaning to be recipients of the same punishment they wanted to incur on the accused, that is only when there is an additional set of witnesses that come and disqualify the witnesses meaning not disqualified via cross-examination but disqualified via a second group of witnesses that come and says, how could you testify in this matter? It's not true and we have evidence. So the example for this is two people come and they say, okay, well, on Sunday in Bennett Maid Park, we saw Ruvene murdering Shimon. Ruvane's a murderer and it's a capital crime case. So this case can be dismissed in a multitude of ways. One of them could say it was, you know, in the outfield or in the bullpen. The other one says no, it was in the parking lot. That's a case where they're not agreeing on the basic facts. Or even if one of them says, I don't really remember where it was, then that case will be dismissed. On the basic facts, everyone needs to know they have to be in lockstep. Alternatively, if we ask, well, was it um, was it a sunny day or was it a rainy day? which is kind of one of those questions that it's not exactly related to the crime itself, but to the surrounding circumstances of the crime. If they contradict each other, again, it is dismissed. But in that event where it's dismissed for that cause, they themselves will not be put on the stand. The two witnesses themselves will not be put on the stand as false witnesses and potentially to receive the same punishment that they wanted to inflict upon the accused. However – if an additional set of two witnesses come and they say, Minute Maid Park on Sunday, you weren't with, you weren't with these people, the murderer, the alleged murder, the alleged victim on, on Sunday. You were with us in the We were on the boat together on that same Sunday. You couldn't have possibly been in Minute Maid Park. You were on the boat, on the yacht with us. And therefore, you're false witnesses because other witnesses say you were in a different location than the place where you claim to have been at the time of the alleged crime. In that event, when there's a second set of witnesses that disqualify not the content of the case but the legitimacy of these witnesses as being privy to a crime when they were in fact in a different location – That renders them false witnesses that can be judged with the crime that they try to inflict on the accused. And by the way, that goes on. So if a third set of witnesses come and say, how can you falsely claim that these original witnesses were with you on the yacht? You yourself were with us in Minneapolis, right? Without these other two on that same Sunday, that you claimed you were on the, on the when they claimed that they were at Minute Maid Park. So this could go on for a hundred times. Uh, it, it gets kind of complicated, but the point is, is that the only way for two false witnesses who are making up a lie to be judged with the same punishment that they want to inflict upon the accused is only when there are a second set of witnesses that pinned them in a different location at the same time of the alleged crime. Some of the more interesting laws with respect to false witnesses, they both have to be proven as liars. Meaning, suppose I say, hey, one of the witnesses was with me in a different location at the time of the alleged crime. That would be insufficient to render both of them as false witnesses. And then there's an interesting law and a very counterintuitive law of false witnesses that are not judged as false witnesses. How so? Suppose you have two witnesses that fabricate a story. They say that Reuven killed Shimon. Total lie. But we don't know it till after we process the case. And indeed, Reuven is tried as a murderer and he's executed. And then post facto... Witnesses come and say, well, that case that you ruled, it wasn't true because we are, we have evidence that those two witnesses weren't at the time, at the location of the alleged crime. They were with us on the yacht. They are with us elsewhere. So the, the Talmud derives from the verse, zamam, you should do to the witnesses as they schemed, as they intended to do to the victim. Whereas if they actually did it to the victim, then we don't punish them with the punishment that they inflicted upon the accused. Meaning, we only punish them tit for tat with what they tried to do, not with what they actually did. Now, the obvious question is, wait a minute. If someone only tried to fabricate a story and to get someone punished in a certain way and we give them that punishment, you would think all the more so. If they actually succeeded in doing it, then then all the more so we should punish them with that same punishment that's an interesting question and there's various different answers given one of the answers i saw in the sefer Chinoch, this is a very fascinating idea he says that when the sanhedrin was in session was ruling it wasn't just the human judges that were there he quotes a verse He says that God, so to speak, was present together with the justices. And if the victim, meaning the victim of this fabrication, was actually not supposed to die, there's no way that God would allow a righteous anhelion to make a mistake and go through all the procedural hurdles to actually execute someone. And therefore, if someone did not commit a crime and they get executed for that crime, And everything that needs to happen for a case to go through the judicial process happens. Again, it's it's exceedingly rare. Once every seven or once every 70 years, a case successfully goes through to actual execution. If all that happened, it must mean the person was guilty for some other reason. There's no way that the Almighty would allow that to happen. And therefore, even though these witnesses are false witnesses, and if you know what, if they came back tomorrow with a second case, we wouldn't believe them because we know that these people are shady but still they're not punished for this specific case because the individual that was executed is someone that the Almighty wanted anyhow for some other reason. That's a very surprising idea that we see. Again, the law is fit. The law is clear that with respect to false witnesses, it's only when they are still in the process of trying to accuse someone falsely, not when they successfully accuse someone falsely. And the reason why is either... This idea that the person, the reason they died and the Almighty allowed that to happen must be for some good reason. We don't know. Alternatively, perhaps we can suggest that the reason why when false witnesses successfully meet out a punishment, that they don't get punished with that is because their sin is too severe. A Jewish court of law, when it executes someone, that's a means of atonement, of expiation, of being cleansed from your sin. If you are such a severe sinner, can help you. So for example, the law states that someone who gives their child to Molech, Molech was one of the most heinous, barbaric idols and idol- idolatrous practices of antiquity. The Torah says if you give your son to Molech, that's an executable offense. What does it mean to give your son to Molech? It means child sacrifice, literal child sacrifice that the idolaters, the pagans of Yor would engage in. They take the the, the son, they put him in the fire. It's terrible, heinous, macabre, brutal, evil. And if you do that, God forbid, someone will take their own child and give it child sacrifice for the idol. That's an executable offense. However, suppose someone takes all their children and gives all their children to the idol. That's not an executable offense. And the obvious question is, why not? If they give one child to the moloch, it's an executable offense. All the more so if they give ten children or five children or all their children to Moloch, then it will be executed offense all the more so. And the answer that our sages tell us is that the Jewish court is not there to punish. It's there to cleanse. When someone commits sins so grievous, so heinous, so beyond reprieve, the Jewish court does not execute them because they're be, they cannot, cannot be helped. Their sins are too severe and therefore they're not within the boundaries of being cleansed and therefore the Jewish court doesn't deal with them let the almighty deal with them these are some of the parameters governing testimony witnesses judicial procedures false witnesses and of course this is a drop in the bucket there's many many more laws for example testimony has to be falsifiable which is a really interesting idea we might have touched upon it in the past that if i give testimony but for whatever reason, it's not possible for me to be falsified by false witnesses, by i.e. witnesses that claim that I'm saying something false. Then the initial testimony is inadmissible. So every testimony has to have within it the deterrent, so to speak, that other witnesses to come and can counteract my testimony and prove me wrong and get me to get the same punishment that I tried to inflict. And therefore, if testimony is not falsifiable, it's not admissible. It has to have that threat, so to speak. But again, there's uh, the Book of Sanhedrin in the Talmud deals with uh, the judicial practices, laws, what cases, how they're done in cross-examination, all the various uh, themes of, of jurisprudence, the Book of Marcos as well. There's a lot of content, literature on this matter, many laws, but that's the basic overview of the concept of testimony And the prohibition against false testimony and the consequences in the event someone does engage in false testimony, how they are processed in a Jewish court of law.